Welcome to Have You Heard the AABP Podcast. My name is Dr. Fred Gingrich. I'm the Executive Director of AABP. And today we're going to talk about an issue that we have brought up within AABP uh, a few times with uh, messaging to our members. And it may be a topic that our members don't think about on a daily basis. And that's what happens to those dead animals uh, that are picked up on the farm and go t- through the rendering process. And so our guest today is Carrie Kershane. And Carrie, I'd like you to go ahead and introduce yourself, please. Uh, yeah, thanks, Fred. Um, so I am the Director of Technical Services for Darling Ingredients Incorporated. We are the uh, largest independent rendering company in the world. Uh, my responsibilities are to assist the quality assurance and product safety team, uh, providing technical assistance with regards to product um, safety, um, product stability, and um, just ensuring that the that the rendered fats and proteins that we deliver to our customers uh, are safe and uh, meet specifications from a, uh, a food safety point of view and from a customer specification point of view. Well, we we have an expert here with us today to to walk us through the rendering process and and some of the issues with rendering, specifically residues in rendering, uh, in the rendered products. And so, Carrie, let's start off and let's just uh, update our listeners about what is the rendering process and then what products are made uh, through rendering. Okay. Really good question, and in rendering is a is a industry that goes way way back. Um, from the last time, the early days of uh, of people um, cooking down uh, meat and uh, literally rendering off the fat from that meat and saving it for use uh, later, either to cook with or maybe to make soaps with um, or other types of uses uh, around the the house. Uh, rendering has been around for for ages. Um, our own company, Darling, has uh, is 140 years old itself, and uh, began at, in an association with Swift Packing in Chicago. Um, Swift, uh, as they were they were slaughtering uh, beef and pork in uh, in Chicago, they had all of the offal left over that. Um, many uh, Americans today, even then and today, don't consume. Uh, whereas in, in other countries around the world, um, there's very little left over from the animal. In, in uh, Western countries, uh, we tend to have a lot of, of leftover material, such as the viscera, the heads, the hides, things like that. And so rather than put that into a landfill, that material goes into the rendering process where it is cooked down, it is heated to a lethality step. Uh, our, our temperature such that it, any kind of um, harmful pathogens are rendered uh, inactivated. And then from that comes uh, the, the fat and the protein are separated out so that we have rendered animal fat and we have rendered animal proteins. Those proteins then might be used in organic fertilizer or they could go to poultry, livestock feed, um, and, and oftentimes they may even be used in pet food, which is a, a real reason why we um, certainly want to make sure that uh, it's a safe feed product because it's going into our, um, uh, our live, poultry and livestock and our, and our pet food processes. The fat uh, can be used also in poultry, livestock feed or pet food, uh, or it may also be used in industrial applications such as soaps and cosmetics. 
uh, and more, more and more now rendered fats are being used in renewable fuels as well. So uh, lots and lots of uses for products that otherwise would end up in a landfill. Um, and that's, that's our rendering process. Yeah. And that's just, you know, we're always on, in our industry, Carrie, we're talking about how, you know, the sustainability of our industry and, and uh, how we have a, a, a positive environmental impact. And I think definitely rendering falls within those goals of making sure that we're utilizing all parts of the animal, even those that we don't use for human uh, consumption. So thank you very much for that uh, uh, detail on what the rendering process is. But Veterinarians are certainly familiar with, you know, dead stock and and those animals being picked up by the rendering truck uh, and and sent into your market. Uh, What and you mentioned, uh, you know, slaughter materials. What percentage of your rendering, you know, uh, products are from dead stock uh, versus uh, slaughter uh, offal? Uh, it's, it's a little hard to tell. And a lot of it has to do with the region of the country, um, with the type of, of facility that uh, rendering facility that, it, that uh, we have, because it, it's, it's very much uh, a mistake to assume that one rendering plant is just like another rendering plant. They're actually very specialized. Some are some specialize in poultry only, some specialize in beef only or pork only, or some do mixed species. So it, a lot of that depends on what what are they doing? But if we were to look, take it, take all of our facilities as a whole uh, and look at what the raw material volume is, we're probably looking at maybe 20 to 30%. So a pretty significant portion of that would be farm dead. Okay. Yeah, that is a significant portion. And again, and that is why it's important that as veterinarians, we're uh, making sure that those animals are also safe uh, for the rendering process. And that's where we are going to start to talk about pentobarbital and the problem with residues that have been detected in rendered products after they have been rendered, after they've gone through that heat, uh, uh, those residues have been detected. So let's start off and talk about the timeline. When did this become an issue, Carrie? Well, if we start looking back, um, this this is something that has probably been in the process for, or, or be, these residues potentially have maybe been in in uh, the rendered process for uh, a while back uh, in the day when uh, rendering plants would take horses. Um, that was something that um, it began to be noticed that uh, that they started seeing levels of pentobarbital in there, and so um, probably within the last ten years has been a significant push to stop rendering horses. And in fact, Darling has not rendered horses in um, in, uh, probably at least five years. Um, But in in around 2015 to 2016, uh, some some pet food advocacy groups began testing for the presence of pentobarbital and and finished pet food and did begin to find small trace amounts of it in there. Uh, And of course, raised concerns with FDA over that. And so from that point on, FDA um, began to uh, work um, with the industry, do some of their own testing, and issued um, a zero tolerance for the presence of pentobarbital in rendered products at, uh, within uh, the last uh, two to three years. So at that point, uh, it became incumbent on the rendering companies because you have a zero tolerance level, they had to begin testing. Uh, for the presence of pentobarbital in in the the finished products uh, as a means to prevent it getting into the the, the food 
chain is, as I mentioned, that we do have industrial applications for some of our products. So um, that material doesn't necessarily have to go to the landfill. It, can, it just has to be redirected to non-food uses. Um, now, the, the methods of detection were uh, developed by FDA and have been adapted um, by uh, third-party laboratories and, and also in-house with Darling. We do perform our own uh, pentobarbital testing based on the FDA method. Uh, the level of detection, however, is as low as 10 part per billion, uh, which means that from that standpoint, one cow that was um, given a, uh, um, a moderate dose of pentobarbital potentially could contaminate 1 million pounds of raw material, which would be uh, an entire day's production of, uh, of material. So that's how sensitive the test is and how critical even a small trace amount of pentobarbital in an animal, incoming animal, uh, what kind of an impact it can have on our process. Wow. <laughs> uh, again, uh, details the importance of this issue for veterinarians and producers. So um, the testing process, so you do that in-house, are you testing uh, raw material batches as they come out uh, um, or is it at the beginning that you're testing that? How is that testing done logistically, Kerry? So it is done uh, on the finished product. So what we okay. do is we will we will hold um, we will fill a fat tank, a fat storage tank. We will lock it out, um, which was always uh, it was already a process for us because we would lock out a, a fat tank for uh, uh, to make sure that the impurities are low enough to meet BSE standards and also that there are no pesticide. Uh, issues or pesticide residue. So that was a process we were already doing anyway. Um, but now we, we've added the, the uh, pentobarbital as another um, uh, compliance test that we have to perform. So that fat, um, that fat tank is designated as a lot. It is locked out until we get uh, full clearance from all of our compliance testing. And then if it, uh, if it comes back and it is, um, it, it does show that it's positive, then we will re we'll direct that fat to an industrial use. So um, it's 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 definitely problematic, and it, and it can uh, it can create some issues for us in that uh, where we may it may be fine from an impurity standpoint or a pesticide standpoint. You know we have a, we find a trace amount of pentobarbital, maybe maybe ten or eleven part per billion, and that whole uh, storage tank has to go to industrial use. Let's talk a little bit about cross-contamination. Veterinarians are familiar with pentabarb and how it's sticky and it seems to be very difficult to get rid of it, when, uh, you know, if it gets on you. Um, talk about cross-contamination and how that might affect pentabarb risk. Oh, absolutely. So we do have evidence where um, a, a, a trailer that had picked up a, a horse and had carried it to a landfill then uh, rather than rather than being washed thoroughly, went out and picked up some cattle dead stock and brought it into the rendering plant. Um, those cattle were contaminated by the fluid transfer from the horse that had been on the trailer. And uh, what mo what's more uh, problematic is that once uh, that trailer was then washed off at the rendering plant and the wastewater, uh, the water from that uh, facility went into the wastewater stream and contaminated the the wastewater stream from that plant uh, as well. So it wasn't just that it was uh, on the carcasses; it got into the wastewater system for the plant. 
And that became a very difficult situation to, to overcome. And the, the, the wastewater system had to be pumped out and cleaned out and uh, to, to prevent any more traces from showing up in the uh, finished products. So big, a big problem there. Um, we've seen it in multiple places where there's fluid transfer. We've also seen where uh, euthanized animals were separated in a um, in a locker, uh, uh, being waiting to be uh, to be incinerated, um, and then across the uh, the locker there were some non-euthanized animals that died of natural causes. But the leachate from the euthanized animals cross-contaminated just by um, leaking across the floor and into the pile of uh, animals that were set for rendering. And then those animals contaminated the rendering stream. So that's all it takes is just a little bit of fluid transfer uh, to get in there. And once it's in your system, you mentioned it's sticky. It makes it very difficult to get out. Uh, it gets in our fat tanks and it will stay in there unless we do a thorough cleaning of those fat tanks. And that is very, very expensive. Um, the same would be true for rail cars. Um, if, if we take that rendered fat and it's contaminated and we send it to our renewable fuel facility, that rail car then has to be thoroughly cleaned before it can go be put back into use for feed use. And um, we have spent in excess of $2 million a year cleaning rail cars because that were contaminated with uh, pentobarbital. Mm. Goodness. How about some, you know, I, I, I heard a presentation that you did at the Academy of Veterinary Consultants, Carrie, and you, it, one thing that I thought was interesting was there were certain areas of the country where you, you have seen a higher percent positive of pentobarb residues and rendered products. Um, and then can you talk a little bit about how education has helped uh, maybe absolutely. decrease those? Yeah, absolutely. So. Um, one of our, the first areas that we began to see some, uh, some real issues was in California, and we, um, uh, we were seeing very high rates of positive counts. I think up to about 40% of all the fat that we were testing at that time was positive for pentobarbital. And uh, one of my coworkers went to uh, a meeting in California, met with California Department of Food and Agriculture, um, informed them on, you know, what our, uh, what we were seeing and that we were seeing 40% positives in California. However, the rest of the country was a little, uh, averaging a little under 5%. Uh, so that was, a, obviously, that was a glaring issue in that, in that state. Uh, California Department of Food of Ag took it very seriously and instituted some of their own um, programs internally and since that time, um, the amount of positive cases has just about dropped off to zero in California. So obviously, education did the trick there. I also uh, spent some time working and talking to the Kansas Livestock Association and the Nebraska Cattlemen's Association, where we were seeing some very high positive cases, particularly in the springtime, where we think it might be associated with, uh, with some spring calving issues. And that may be something we, we'll, we'll talk about a little later. Um, but after those conversations, um, I have not had another case. It's been over well over a year in both cases. I've not had another case in Kansas. And I went almost a year or about a year before I saw another case in Nebraska as well. And, and those were very uh, uh, short term isolated cases in Nebraska. So I think it was a, it was a little bit of a fluke. So that that showed us that um, uh, educating the, uh, the practitioners in those states has helped greatly. Also, southern Minnesota has been a very big 
um, problem area for us. Um, we are currently seeing uh, somewhere around 20% um, positive cases out of Southern Minnesota. Um, that has dropped actually um, because uh, in at the, be the beginning of this summer, I was able to have conversations with members of the Minnesota uh, veterinary board there and uh, they were very upset with the situation and have gone back and talked to their practitioners. And so cases have really dried up in Minnesota since that conversation. So education has proven to be very useful. If we can get an audience, we can get in front of people and talk about what, what we're seeing in their areas. It seems to help. Yeah. And that's our goal for today, Carrie, is to get yeah, this absolutely. information out there to veterinarians so they can start to think about these things. Uh, another thing that I found interesting is that you found some pentabarb residues that you associated with slaughter offal. Is that correct? That's, that's correct. And in, uh, in Texas, uh, we have a facility that does not take farm dead. They might take some uh, some dead uh, some downer animals that didn't that made it to a maybe an old cow kill uh, slaughter plant, but then you know died in larage, um, did not make it to the the kill floor. Um, but it's it's we're we're unsure of whether it would be those animals or if it was the actual slaughter material. But nevertheless, those animals were destined for slaughter. And we are seeing uh, um, reg uh, regularly, we see cases from uh, that facility. Um, they, they run uh, overall, we're seeing about four and a half percent positive from that, um, from that particular rendering plant, which is pretty close. Um, uh, it's, it's a little higher than the national average, but the fact that they're getting, they're not getting any farm dead and yet they're having, you know, they're still seeing four and a half percent positive. That's a problem. That material is destined for the food stream. Yeah, and that's something that uh, I'm scratching my head about. And one of the things, you know, that uh, uh, we talked about at the Academy of Veterinary Consultants meeting was, is pentabar being used for something other than euthanasia? So uh, hopefully uh, that is not occurring because it is very inappropriate for veterinarians to use uh, this drug for sedation um, in any manner. So hopefully that is not occurring. And if you are listening and you have heard of that occurring, I would encourage you to contact me because uh, we need to make sure that as our industry that we're doing things in an appropriate manner. So let's get to Darling's Pentabarb policy, uh, Carrie. What is your company's policy on on Pentabarb? So we have um, we have a a supplier guarantee, a supplier warranty that we require our our raw material suppliers, whether it be a slaughter plant or whether it be a farmer who wants us to pick up his his farm dead. Uh, he's required to to sign a policy, take make an agreement that he has not administered. Uh, any um, uh, barbiturate-based drug res uh, drugs to that animal, and um, and give us that guarantee. So uh, we're looking at we consider it as a uh, as a hazard, uh, not one that we require a preventive control for, but one that is that is um, managed through our warranty system, and then our testing program is meant to see how effective our warranties are. So. Uh, we are having to manage pentobarbital and recognize it as a chemical hazard for our food safety plans for each of our facility. 
Uh, and that's that that's a very big burden. That is a very big burden on us. Um, and, it, and it's something uh, from a from a cost standpoint, uh, it is required the purchase of very sophisticated equipment. Um, uh, the test requires LC dual MS. We've had to purchase two of those for our compliance lab and uh, and train personnel to be able to, to run that equipment. So um, we what we do is is um, we will, as I mentioned earlier, we will test that fat uh, to make sure that um, our warranties are, in, are are working. If we do get a positive on that fat, then that material will go to industrial use. So um, it's we're really relying heavily on the 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 vets, uh, the farmers, and and I, then I guess the you know by way of the farmers, the vets working with the farmers to uh to keep that drug out of our system and when you talk about uh that fat being pushed to industrial i have a couple questions on that carrie um first off you mentioned fat is is it the nature of this compound uh being deposited in fat is that only detected in fat and you're not picking it up in the protein well we you can pick it up in the protein what we have to do is we don't have the ability to uh, hold protein, okay. um, we just they're renders their render plants in general do not have that much capacity. Uh, so what we're able to do though is we've we've done some some testing um, and and we've uh, and working with uh, um, uh, our material. What we've been able to find is that uh, even though we believe that pentobarbital by nature should be equally distributed between or equally soluble in fat and water, what we're seeing is it tends to stay with the fat. And so uh, what we're able to do is we'll take and we'll look at the levels in that fat based on and based on the fat level in the protein, we can determine whether or not it, it's going to be even uh, detectable in the protein or not. And we've we've run our own tests on the protein via FDA method and confirmed that that we we can't find it. Uh, so it's not if it's there, it's in such a small level that it's not detectable by our processes. So. And when that fat, if you have a positive fat test and that gets put into industrial use, soaps and, and, and things of that nature, uh, fuels, is there a, is that a, uh, a loss? Is that product, uh, sold for less money? Is there an economic impact there for you besides the cleaning and all that? It really depends on where the market is at that time. So, okay. and yeah, and it's actually limited from the standpoint of um, it pretty much can only go to renewable diesel. It can't go to biodiesel. And the reason being that renewable diesel does not have any byproducts from that process. Whereas biodiesel, you would, you potentially have glycerin as a byproduct and that glycerin is often used in the feed industry. So mm -hmm. out of an abundance of caution, we would not sell it to the biodiesel um, uh, industry. And so, yeah, there, then, then there could be, there's a loss of market right there. Even on the industrial side, that's a loss of market. So uh, yeah, there, there's some potential uh, economic loss by having to, uh, to send it just to one particular industry at that point. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the testing methodology because that's potentially what some veterinarians are scratching their heads over when they, uh, listen to this is, you know, is that, is that methodology accurate? You know, he said it's 10 parts per billion is the detection limit. And um, is there a possibility that we're getting positive results from other barbiturate compounds that are not penrobarbital? 
Well, that's what we were. We we asked the exact same question as as producers. Are we seeing false positives? Are we seeing things? You know, something that's not that that's not really there. Uh, and so we took the we took the method to uh, uh, chemists and asked their opinion on it, and uh, for them to look at the method and look at the detection and what we're seeing. And the chemists have come back and said, "No, your method is so." Uh, so specific to pentobarbital that if it's getting, if you're seeing a peak, it's pentobarbital. It's not mistaking it for anything else. And so we were hoping that that potentially was the case, that it was, there was a level of inaccuracy there. But when we talk to chemists uh, about this, they're, they're all in agreement saying, no, if you're seeing the peak with this method, it's pentobarbital. Yeah. And there's an environmental issue here too. Veterinarians, hopefully are aware of that as well, that if they, you know, if they bury these animals or don't get them composted or buried and, and that pentabarb can last a long time in the environment. Is that correct? That is correct. And, and in fact, um, uh, a study done, I believe by Oklahoma state just a few years ago, uh, a horse euthanized with, uh, I believe it was a hundred thousand part per uh, billion of um, pentabarbital uh, was composted, and one year later, uh, the soil was was removed and tested, and um, pentobarbital was still found in that soil in very high amounts. And so it showed that while the horse decayed, the the drug itself did not uh, decay very much in that soil. Uh, it also becomes an issue if if uh, animals are are euthanized. Uh, or treated, you know, uh, as, as we mentioned, potentially, you know, sedated maybe with the drug and then the animal uh, dies later. Um, if the animal carcass is drug off to the back 40, any potential scavengers, and that could include bald eagles, golden eagles, protected species, mm-hmm. if they scavenge those carcasses and then uh, die as a result of that, then the farmer and, and, and potentially the veterinarian also could be held to blame for that. Yeah. And, AABP has uh, developed uh, guidelines for the humane euthanasia of cattle, uh, and then I would, we're going to link that. That that guideline is currently undergoing a, a review right now by our Animal Welfare Committee, so I would encourage our members to uh, review that as you're developing euthanasia protocols. And there are three methods that we can euthanize cattle with, and those are gunshot, captive bold, or chemical euthanasia. And uh, in our guideline, we discourage the use of pentabarb for euthanasia. And if you want to euthanize an animal with a chemical agent, they can be put under anesthesia with something like xylazine ketamine. And then we can uh, uh, perform a secondary step, uh, such as IV saturated salts, as long as they're completely anesthetized. So one of the things, Carrie, that our members ask us is, well, if I can't use pentabarb, can I use another drug? And will that animal be safe for the rendering process? So that's that's a, another good question. And, and we've trained our uh, each facility uh, has a call taker when a when a farmer calls in and we've trained them to ask a lot of questions. Uh, and some of the plants who have been, you know, for lack of a better term, burned uh, in the past by uh, receiving animals that that turned out to actually have pentobarbital in them. They've asked, they began asking much more detailed questions. Give me, a, give me an account of everything that animal's given. Mm-hmm. You know, every, everything that, that uh, the vet potentially gave that animal before it died. 
um, and then we will review those those drugs and and uh, and determine whether or not it's acceptable. Um, so for the most part, we would say yes. You know, if it's not specifically spelled out and banned by FDA, we would be willing to take those animals. One drug, though, you mentioned xylazine um, that I've I've kind of threw up some caution about is that we did have an, an occasion where um, the, the the farmer said that um, uh, didn't say what it had been given uh, initially, but then um, when we came came back positive and we traced it back to a farmer, uh, he said it had been given xylazine and pentobarbital as like a cocktail mm. um, by the vet and. Um, so we've kind of we now we're concerned about xylazine because we have an, have it associated with pentobarbital. Um, I know that's not always the case, but um, you know we're we're not vets, um, we're not pharmacists either, and so we're just doing the best we can to try to prevent uh, the pentobarbital from getting into our system. Yes, absolutely. So let's uh, let's talk a little bit, Carrie, about the current status of, of of testing for pentobarbital by Darling. What are you seeing as far as you know your 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 positive rates? Uh, and then obviously that's going to vary by plant, I'm assuming. But what are some trends that you're seeing? The the trend is good. I think initially our first year we were probably seeing very close to five percent national average of positive cases. Um, that has uh, gone down significantly to we're around 3.4% positive right now. Um, and you, you think, well, that's, that still sounds like a lot. Well, you keep in mind that we have tested over 13,000 uh, lots of fats in the last uh, three, going on three years now. And so um, uh, that, that comes out to over 400 positive cases in the last three years. So, but most of those were going to be around that first year of testing or so. Uh, and and bef- when we were just beginning to, to start to see where these issues were, where the problems were and things have gotten much, much better now. Um, so to see, to see a, a, a drop in that, that's significant from a, from around 5% to 3.4. That's, that's positive for us. We're, we're excited about that, you know, and, to, and just to say, where we have this one facility in Texas that's um, where uh, we've had the, the issue with uh, with um, slaughter animals testing positive. If we look at our packer plants, packer only plants, so these are only doing packer grade animals. Uh, we have five or six of those facilities across the U.S., and we have had zero positive cases from packer only uh, plants. So it's only when we've had the cow slaughter introduced that we've seen positive cases, but if it's a packer only facility, we've had zero positive cases in three years of testing. Well, that's good news that we have some positive trends. We'd like to see that 3.4% drop even more. When we look at our residue rate in our, in our milk, uh, in our, in our, uh, uh, live cattle slaughter way less than that. So I think we as an industry really need to, uh, uh, wrap our heads around this issue and each do our part to, to be part of the solution on this and, 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 and do the right thing uh, while we're uh, caring for these animals at the end of their life. So Carrie, uh, as we wrap up here, how, how do you see in your role uh, with Darling, uh, where do you see, uh, you know, what can veterinarians do to bring that 3.4% number down even lower? What would be your message to them? 
I, I think it would be to, uh, as you've mentioned, consider the alternatives and um, and determine what uh, think think ahead, think of the future. Where's this animal going to go? Ask the questions to those farmers before you administer anything. What are you going to do with this animal? Are you going to bury it? Are you going to compost it? Is rendering going to pick it up? What's going to happen to it? So ask before you admit you decide what method of euthanasia you're going to use or even sedation. If you're going to sedate a cow because she's having calving difficulties, ask the farmer, hey, if she dies, what's going to happen to her? What are you going to do to her? Um, because that's important. Uh, also, if 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 the farmer is potentially going to beef out the cow because, you know, maybe she's prolapsed or, or, or have other issues and she's no longer useful. Be aware of that 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 potentially is going to go into the food chain uh, and, and not only get into rendering, but also into the edible industry as well. So I, I would say that's my, my takeaway from this is I, I'd love for the vets to start asking more hard questions of the farmers about the, the, the eventual use of these animals. That is a great charge for our listeners, Carrie. And so if you're a veterinarian driving around in your truck and listening to this podcast and it's a great conversation, we always like to ask questions of our producers, so ask your producers, what are you doing with your dead stock? And, uh, and let's talk about managing that in an appropriate uh, manner. This is a very valuable service to our industry. Uh, it it uh, helps keep uh, product out of landfills, which is good for our environment. And so we need to make sure as an industry that we're doing the right thing and not contaminating this product because rendering is valuable to uh, our industry, both in terms of dead stock and in, in, in uh, uh, slaughter offal. Let's make sure that you are developing euthanasia protocols for your farm. Every farm should have a euthanasia protocol and every farm should have a method of euthanasia with trained personnel on the farm. And I would encourage our listeners that are veterinarians to use pentobarbital as a last resort, not your first choice option when you're euthanizing cattle. Uh, there are You can utilize any of the methods that are approved by AABP and the AVMA, which are gunshot, captive bull with the secondary step, or chemical euthanasia. Consider using products other than pentobarbital. We encourage you to get trained on the proper use of a gun or a captive bolt when doing uh, humane euthanasia on farm. So I think that those should be our first options, chemical euthanasia last option, pentabarb even a further down option. So let's do the right thing when we're caring for these animals at the end of their life. Consider alternatives, as Carrie mentioned. And I think we also need to consider... Uh, that food safety is incredibly important to our industry, both for producers and veterinarians. And we have to realize that that slaughter awful and uh, farm dead, we also have to apply that food safety uh, uh, hazard analysis to those animals as well, not just our call cows uh, and fat cattle. So, Kerry, really appreciate uh, you uh, providing us with information about the rendering industry and the issue of pentabarb contamination. And I hope this education will further our goal of decreasing these residues in rendered products. Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate the time.